delighted to have Jim Ho, an old friend and one of the young stars of the sovereign debt world with us today. And we were particularly hoping to get Jim on the podcast because he has been involved in the drafting of a particularly innovative new clause, uh, the hurricane clause. The world of sovereign debt, to our minds, is characterized by a dramatic lack of innovation, usually. It takes years for new clauses to be devised, and investors and issuers both seem just as a rule almost terrified of doing anything innovative because they're, they're scared that the basis points will be too many. So when we do see an innovation and particularly an innovation that seems to increase social welfare, it is exciting. So I'm gonna ask Jim, if you wouldn't mind, uh, to tell us what this hurricane clause is and uh, how did you guys create it? And, uh, you know, I started paying attention to it first when I saw it in the Barbados deal uh, this year, but my, my sense is that you guys uh, came up with it uh, before that. Thanks, Mitsu and Mark, for having me and the very kind uh, introduction. Well, it's really a fantastic treat for me to be on this podcast. So the basic idea of a hurricane clause or really a natural disaster clause is quite simple. So if a natural disaster occurs, the debtor country will be permitted to defer payments under the bonds during a prescribed period of time. So this allows the country to channel the funds that would otherwise go to uh, servicing the debt towards more immediate needs uh, during the most challenging period following the natural disaster. The money saved can be used towards relief, towards rehabilitation, towards reconstruction. This doesn't mean, uh, mean that the issuer would not be paying back the debt owed. It's simply a liquidity relief mechanism. Countries should think of the natural disaster clause as the lightning rod for their sovereign bonds. The clause will help them uh, help to insulate them against the negative financial effects of a natural disaster. So while the second generation natural disaster clause appeared in the restructured bonds of Barbados in 2018-2019, the first generation natural disaster clause actually appeared in Grenada's bonds back in 2015. So I'm, I'm so, so uh, sorry for wanting to go further into the history, but. I how did you guys have the first, how did you think that the markets would be willing to accept this innovation given how slow they are at accepting innovation generally? And then how did you create it? After all, our experience in innovation in sovereign bonds has generally been that it can really only happen if one of the big players like Mexico sort of puts out an innovation and then the IMF and uh, the US Treasury, uh, they, they you know, play, the, play their music celebrating this innovation and then all the little countries adopt it. And 
Grenada and Barbados are two tiny little countries that really don't issue a lot of bonds. And you guys were able to innovate with them. How did that happen? Well, I think necessity is the mother of invention, right? So me too, I know you love cricket and you probably think that cricket is the national sport of the UK. But it I hate is, to, isn't it? <laughs> I hate to break it to you, it's not. Our national sport is in fact talking about the weather. Now we have something to say when it's too hot, we've got something to say when it's too cold. <laughs> it, makes, it makes sense here since the weather here is so very changeable. So we are products of our national, uh, nat natural and national environment, whether we know it or not. But as changeable as the weather may be in the UK, it's really not that bad. Other countries are unfortunately not as lucky as us. Like changeable weather can be a matter of life or death for some countries like Grenada. So in September 2004, if you want to turn back the clock a little bit, Grenada was struck by Hurricane Ivan. So the devastation brought by Ivan was uncompromisingly thorough and ferocious. So almost 90% of the houses in the country were destroyed or severely damaged by the hurricane. So much so that even the prime minister was rendered homeless when his official residence was destroyed. So the total damage to the island was more than 200% of the country's nominal GDP. So me too, Mark, I'm sure you will agree with me that we usually can detect a sovereign debt crisis from a mile away. We usually have some early warning signals. For example, there'll be issues of fiscal mismanagement by the government, then the bond prices will start tanking, and it usually ends with alarm bells ringing louder and louder by the credit rating agencies and the IMF. But Grenada's sovereign debt crisis did literally happen overnight following a random external shock. They did successfully do the first round of restructuring back in 2005, and it stemmed the bleeding for a period of time, but it wasn't enough. And as a result of the 2008 financial crisis, they needed to do another round of restructuring in 2015. And given what they knew about Hurricane Ivan in 2004, and then also Hurricane Emily in 2005, they decided that you know, it's time to include the so-called hurricane clause in their restructured bonds. And since this is a contract law podcast, you know, we should look at the clause in a little bit more detail. So like any legal provision, you need to ask two questions. So what is the trigger and what is the outcome? So the trigger in Grenada's natural disaster clause is a tropical cyclone, so it's a hurricane. So unlike a pandemic, scientists have actually developed ways to measure what a tropical cyclone is. And one interesting aspect from a contractual law point of view is that it outsources the determination of the trigger event to an independent third party entity so that the parties can avoid any dispute as to whether a tropical cyclone has actually occurred under the clause. And the way the Grenadians did this was to tie the clause to their insurance policy. So Grenada had purchased insurance against the risk of hurricanes from the Caribbean Catastrophe Risk Insurance Facility, or CRIF. So if the hurricane triggers a payout under the CRIF insurance policy, then the hurricane clause in the bond contract is also triggered. 
The clause also contains a de minimis amount trigger. So it can only be activated if the modded loss under the insurance contract is at least $15 million. So this is a form of protection for the bondholders as the government will not be able to trigger the hurricane clause if the hurricane clause does not result in a material damage to the country. Jim, uh, yep. sorry, sorry to, uh, this, is, this, is so, this is so fascinating, um, but, but to, to try and understand this better, are you saying that the clause in effect needed an insurance market to exist? for it to be able to piggyback on that insurance market. And uh, second, along those lines, if there was an insurance market, right? You said that uh, Grenada purchased insurance, um, then, then why the clause? Because the clause is in effect a form of insurance. So that, it seems like if you could buy insurance, then investors would say, well, go buy insurance. Don't ask for insurance from us. Right, so there, well, two, two responses to that. The first one is that every little bit counts, right, during a natural disaster. So you might have insurance, but then the insurance payout might not be sufficient for you to meet your obligations in the event of a natural disaster. And the outcome of a natural disaster clause, if it's uh, effectively triggered is that you can actually defer the payments under the bond. So this is more savings uh, for, for the government. So in the case of Grenada, if the moderate loss is between 15 and 30 million, they can push out the payment due on the next payment date. If the loss is more than $30 million, then they can defer uh, the two consecutive payment dates after uh, the election is made. So according to a report by the IMF, the total cash flow relief following the trigger, uh, triggering of the hurricane clause by Grenada could be as much as 7.4% of GDP. So this is a significant sum of money that can be used towards humanitarian aid and post-disaster rebuilding efforts. And right? so, so you, oh, yep. sorry. Uh, go, go just ahead. To, as I'm understanding, um, I wanted to, to follow up on this kind of risk sharing component that you and, and me too are talking about. Um, and if I can, I guess I have two questions which are from opposite perspectives. So the first question is just asking about investor pushback. Uh, since while to me sitting here in my reasonably comfortable office in North Carolina, this all sounds perfectly reasonable. Um, I'm imagining that um, it, it took some selling to persuade investors that they should be willing to share some of this risk. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about that. The flip side, sorry, the flip side of that question though is in the force majeure context, whenever there's a fight over the meaning of the force majeure clause, one of the arguments that comes up from the, the enforcing party is, First of all, there's no, there hasn't been a force majeure event here, but second of all, the very fact of the force majeure clause operates as a waiver of the default excuses like impracticability and maybe necessity and so forth. And so I'm wondering if there was any, obviously not in the context of these two countries, but if, um, if issuers have some reason to be concerned that by expressly contracting for some kind of excuse 
they are giving up the right to rely on these these other defenses. And, and normally that wouldn't be much of a concern, even if it's real, because those defenses never work. But I'm thinking they might have more purchase in the context of COVID. Sure. Um, so in the case of creditors' uh, pushback, I think creditors should really embrace uh, this clause since it would make a disorderly default less likely. So the natural disaster clause embeds within the contractual framework an automatic deferral of payments without the associated cost of a formal restructuring process. So it would not really be in the creditor's interest to push back or in fact, in the case of Barbados, you know, exercise the right to block the issuer's exercise of the natural disaster clause in situations where it's clear that the country has suffered a catastrophic loss and will not have sufficient funds to service its debt obligations. And on the question of force majeure clause, I think in most debt instruments, we don't in typically include a force majeure clause and it's typically invoked more in supply contracts. And I think the reason for that is that investors aren't in the business of losing money, right? So they do not want to take on uh, extra external risks uh, in, the, you know, in, in the event of a natural disaster, for example. And when something like that happens, you really need a specific clause, like a natural disaster clause to deal with it. And whether you necessarily need a third party to make that pronouncement I don't know. I, I, I think it's helpful to have you know, an insurance agency or a company to say that, okay, there's a payout and the insurance. And so you know, that uh, helps to trigger the natural disaster clause under the bonds as well. But as we develop our systems, whether it's for pandemics or natural disasters, perhaps one day we'll have you know, an authority who can actually say, look, you know, the hurricane whipping through this particular country is at you know, 39 miles uh, per hour and it's sustained for a minute and therefore it falls into this particular category of hurricane. And so you know, when that happens, the clause is triggered. But I don't think we are there yet. And so that's why in both the case of Grenada and also Barbados, the trigger is linked to their insurance policies with the Caribbean Catastrophe Risk Insurance Facility. And so it's, it's um, interesting that this is a mechanism, this paired with the, uh, the 50% blocking vote, sort of a mechanism that gives uh, investors some confidence that the provision's not going to be abused. And, and that, to me, is in some ways the, the most interesting and innovative aspect of this, since um, investors are, are, of course, worried about opportunism on the, on the issuer side. I do wonder, though, just to, to, to kind of follow up a little bit, um, do you, is that, uh, that the structure of that argument in force majeure cases, is that something you think courts are likely to respond to in the sense that in the context of COVID, countries that think about and write some excuses into their contract. Do we infer anything about that, um, about the availability of these other defenses like impracticability and so forth? Well, I think the doctrine under English law uh, is a doctrine of frustration. So we don't have a force majeure doctrine generally. So in order to invoke force majeure, you really need a clause that allows you to terminate the contract uh, in the event of a force majeure. But in the 
case of frustration, the bar is set so high that you know, at the beginning of COVID-19, there's a lot of debate uh, about whether frustration was invoked and the general view was actually not. You know, even in the worst pandemic in living history, I hope, of our generation, it wasn't invoked uh, under English law. And I, as far as I'm aware, it hasn't been challenged in court. So I think that you know, that's such a tough argument to push through that people are probably thinking, actually, let's not deal with that. Let's find some other way to uh, figure out and reach a resolution if there's a dispute over whether uh, the contract can or cannot be performed. Mm-hmm. So, Jim, uh, just uh, I, the, this. So there are two things that uh, are fascinating in, in what you said. One, that uh, investors between Granada and Barbados seem to have decided that they want more protection against uh, perhaps what our economist friends would say is the moral hazard problem in that, if I understood you correctly, they put in place an extra protection where they could reject uh, the, the claim of the debtor that it needed hurricane relief. And second, this discussion that you and Mark had about frustration, impossibility, impracticability, brings up the question that we've discussed on a prior podcast with Eric Posner of whether in the sovereign context, one could turn to the international law version of force majeure, which is not contractual, the the um, necessity doctrine that uh, Argentina brought up multiple times and is now at issue uh, for Venezuela in federal court in U.S. And my, my guess is would be implicit in any U.K. court since it's customary international law. I think that's actually a good well, an interesting argument. I haven't actually had a chance to think about it very much, but I think the basic concepts under English contractual law is pretty straightforward. So force majeure is a contractual term and has no prescribed definition under English law. So you can't really assert force majeure unless you have a clause in there. And whether you can rely on customary international law to push it through Perhaps there, there might be case law uh, on that, but you know, the discussion that I've had so far on this particular issue is really whether can you invoke uh, the doctrine of frustration. And if I, as I've mentioned earlier, the threshold for proving thresh, uh, frustration is typically ha- uh, much higher uh, and it's quite difficult uh, to do that. Well, this sets us up very nicely uh, for our second half, where I'm hoping we can ask Jim both about the pricing question and about the design of something that would build on the hurricane clause for the COVID context. But I think it's time for us to go to a little break. So back from our break, uh, we have a nice transition, as Mitu uh, was saying. He and I have been thinking quite a lot about uh, the relationship between COVID and sovereign debt. Uh, I- I'm sure 
you have been thinking about it much more than, than we have, Jim. Um, but from the the kind of simple contracting perspective um, that we sometimes adopt, one of the neatest things about seeing the advent of these natural disaster clauses and then seeing the the evolution between the first generation and the, the second generation uh, of these clauses is the expansion of trigger events to cover a, a somewhat wider range of triggers. And so that has me wondering whether it would be possible to design a COVID clause or something that would allow for the deferral of debt payments in a pandemic type situations without creating a risk that the moral hazard risk that me too and I were referencing earlier. So what do you think about that? Is that something we should expect to see? Is that a, a development that would be a, a good development? What about the COVID clause? I, I think there's definitely a possibility for that. And I'm a glass half full kind of guy. So I think that hopefully uh, this will come to fruition at some point in the future. So one of the differences between the hurricane clause in Grenada's restructured bonds in 2015 and then Barbados's uh, bonds in 2018, 2019 is that Barbados actually pushed uh, the innovation further and included not just hurricanes, but also uh, floods and earthquakes into their natural disaster clause. So I think it's slightly inaccurate to call it a hurricane clause now because we've now included in the second generation uh, version of the clause other natural, uh, natural disasters. I think the challenge for us now is to actually figure out how do you define a pandemic for the purposes of the, the clause. And one of the things, uh, interesting things uh, that came up in the last few months is, of course, the pandemic bonds issued by the World Bank, uh, which, by the way, bears no resemblance to uh, the natural disaster clause. So the pandemic bonds works more like an insurance contract. So uh, the theory is the World Bank will issue uh, issued those bonds. And if a pandemic occurs, then the bonds could be wiped out and written down. And so the monies saved from that will be channeled by the World Bank as an intermediary towards uh, pandemic relief uh, efforts. So the one of the main problems with that, uh, with, with that bond is that the people just didn't know how to uh, define pandemics, or they did, and it's incredibly complicated. So if you look at the World Bank prospectus, in order to trigger what a pandemic is, you know, there are like seven different criteria and that's, you know, uh, quite uh, befuddling. And one consequence of the COVID-19 outbreak now is that we are all experts on pandemics, right? So given our collective improvement in our knowledge about how diseases spread, I hope that one day we can actually develop better systems to track, monitor, and report on the outbreaks of diseases. And with improved systems, we should be able to come up with fewer fewer activation criteria for pandemic bonds or you know, a natural disaster clause that includes uh, pandemics. But the aim is to simplify, simplify, and simplify. I'm not going to, but I think I might be able to name at least one person who is not a, an expert in pandemics. But in uh, leaving... Um, leaving that aside, does that, why does the, the definition of the, the triggering event, um, so one of the interesting things about the transition um, between the first and second generation of, of natural disaster clauses is that investors 
kind of ex post when they have information about what really um, caused the payment difficulties, they can veto uh, the decision that there's been a triggering event. So doesn't that make it um, less important whether we can really define a pandemic? Like what's wrong with just saying, I don't know, if the WHO says there's a pandemic, there's a pandemic, but investors have a, they can block the, this decision with a 50% vote. Hey, I, actually, can I, I want to uh, add to what Mark, is, uh, Mark has me, um, interjected here. Given the, the reversal ability of the investors, now does sort of, does the Barbados clause in effect overlap with something like the reverse, reverse acceleration clause? That the investors just get to decide whether they want to grant relief or not. I think that's a, a compromise, right? Because when we're talking about the 50% 50, 50 uh, blocking vote by the investors, we're really talking about 50% of 500 million in the context of the restructured bonds for Barbados. So you need to find 250 million bonds, no, holders of 250 million worth of bonds to say, actually, I really don't think that this is a legitimate use of the trigger, whether it's for a hurricane or if we figure out how to draft for pandemics. You know, from the perspective of a single bondholder, you might think that actually, am I going to find the other, you know, two or, uh, the other bondholders who would together with me uh, comprise 50% of the bonds? That's actually a pretty high threshold. So I think from the perspective of the issuer, they, you know, can find comfort in the fact that. Hopefully, 50% of its uh, bondholders are sensible uh, investors and they're not opportunistic and they won't force a formal restructuring when it's clear that you know, there's a catastrophe and they don't have enough funds to service the debt obligations. And from the perspective of the bondholders, they, you know, the, the protection they get you know, are in the form of the you know, insurance policy. So the trigger uh, needs for, for now needs to be linked and tied to insurance policy. So they, they get you know, several types of protection along the way, but as we develop the clause, you know, I, I, I'm sure that people will find different ways of getting protection or giving up protection. So Jim, I, I, I'm, I, ho I hope you know that I wholeheartedly applaud and admire the innovation that you guys did, but I, I'm, I am frustrated, uh, particularly because Mark and I spent a lot of time working or at least thinking about the Puerto Rican debt. And now we are paying attention to uh, the debt of other Caribbean countries and countries like the Maldives and Fiji. And I don't see any pickup of this clause that you guys created in these other countries. In fact, I don't see any any indication that they are willing to use the clause. And the the typical answer that I get when I've asked people in the debt offices is, "Oh, it, it, it'll cost us too much." And you know, then my response is, "Well." It doesn't seem to have cost Barbados and Grenada all that much, but actually, I, I don't know. I, I, I just, uh, I'm embarrassed to say, I just assert that it doesn't seem to have cost them all that much. But I, I, this is in some ways where the rubber meets the road. 
how much did it cost you guys? How many basis points did it cost you? Because if it cost a lot, then these countries should know. If it cost very little, then we should know. And if it benefited, uh, that seems especially important. And it also seems especially important when we're designing a COVID clause. I, I, I was uh, on a Slate Money podcast with uh, Felix Salmon and our dear friend Lee Bukite, and I asked them, well, why don't we have a COVID clause just like the hurricane clause? And both of them said, well, it would cost too many basis points. And of course, my response is, well, how do you know? So we're asking you, Jim, how much is it going to cost? Like, how much money? Well, I, during our negotiations with the creditors, for, uh, in the case of Barbados, they did resist the inclusion of the natural disaster clause and asserted that you no, know, the bonds containing natural disaster clauses are too complex, too difficult to value, and would be too expensive. But the thing is, there is demand for the new bonds issued by Barbados. The bond prices for Barbados's restructured bonds actually traded up after the restructuring was done in December last year, notwithstanding that they contained the natural disaster clause. So people are buying this. And in a related context, we have also seen increased investor appetite in other financial products like green bonds and sustainable bonds. So the next step, as you rightly alluded to, is for issuers to issue bonds with these features outside of a restructuring context. So the hope is that you know, if more frequent bond issuers would issue papers with the natural disaster clause, like what Mexico did with the collective action clause in 2003, the novelty will hopefully fade and the increased cost, if there's any, will fall over time. And to do this, you do need political will because political, for things to change, political will is everything. And we also saw it play out in the case of Barbados. And we also saw it in the debate between Asterium and Cax. Right. So in the case of Barbados, when the new government won uh, the landslide victory back in 2018, they did it, did it on a platform of economic reforms. So when the team started working on the restructuring in 2018, it's hard not to look back at the hurricane season back in 2017. And 2017 was a pretty terrible year for the region climate-wise. And it's interesting that you actually uh, mentioned Puerto Rico because in 2017, if you remember, Hurricane Maria went through Puerto Rico and killed some 3,000 people. So the decision makers in Barbados were quite insistent on the inclusion of the natural disaster clause even when they faced opposition from the creditors, and even when the uh, negotiations with the creditors you know, got uh, dragged uh, for a prolonged period of time. But ultimately, we succeeded, and Barbados is now the only country in the world with a climate-resilient public debt portfolio. And so, so to link this back to, to sort of the question we began this podcast with, so... W- I think I can speak for me too. When the tendency when we teach contracts is to teach the class as if it's about um, the careful design of um, agreements to sort of allocate risks in ways that are optimal for the parties. And and um, here we're talking to you about uh, an episode where that kind of paradigm seems to be the reality, where, where lawyers and a client got together and came up with an innovative solution to a particular set of problems. And so that's wonderful. That makes me feel like we're teaching contract law the right way. But then we also have 
a, a problem that is generalizable. A lot of countries face it. A clause that's been carefully designed to balance investors' concerns with the the country's interest in responding to natural disaster. We have evidence that the market didn't react negatively to it and that there's no pricing consequences, and yet it still hasn't diffused throughout the market yet. And I, I just find this so puzzling. What do you think it will take for seemingly this, this um, really uh, uh, important innovation to spread? Why hasn't it spread already? That's a good question. I, I don't think I've got an answer uh, to it. Uh, it's uh, to me, it seems like a no-brainer, right? So I, at the beginning of the podcast, I mentioned that we should think of natural disaster clauses as uh, uh, the lightning rod for our sovereign bonds. And if you look back to 300 years ago, you know, buildings didn't have lightning rods, and now you know it seems like the most common thing and most uh, you know e easiest thing that you should do. I think we need a paradigm shift uh, in people's mentality. And we need, as I said earlier, a Mexico or you know, a, a, a country, a World Bank even, to issue bonds or in, uh, do um, uh, loans and debt instruments with these clauses in there. And as people get used to these things, then perhaps you know, we'll be able to see more of it uh, in the market. But for now, there's still the fear that you know, when you include something new, something unusual, the market is going to charge you for it. And you, you know, we, we, I'm sure you, you remember that at the beginning of uh, the introduction of the collective action clauses, you know, people were saying, oh, no, like, you know, everyone who puts CACs in their bonds will have to pay a little bit more. But then I think the latest research shows, no, there's actually no uh, difference in pricing between those bonds with collective action clauses and those that don't. So Jim, we are we have used up too much of your time already, but this this has been truly fascinating. I'm I'm gonna ask you one last question on the same theme, which is if we care about improving the contract clauses and feel a sense of urgency, which I do because I am worried that we will have another sudden stop and the costs of COVID are going to hit us in the form of dozens of sovereign defaults soon. And therefore, all new bonds at least should have protections. Uh, but assuming uh, you share my pessimism, which you don't necessarily do, how do we go about persuading the important countries like the Mexico's to start including these clauses quickly? Like, is there a template? I mean, you've, you've worked on one of the most innovative uh, sovereign debt teams for a number of years, and you've seen innovation occur firsthand and actually done innovation. What, what would you tell us to do? Should Mark and I go and do a little pricing study of Barbados? Uh, um, should the IMF uh, be advocating for this like it did for collective action clauses? Uh, should uh, ICMA be uh, putting out its own draft clause? Although actually, I think I saw somewhere on their website that they, they seem supportive of uh, hurricane clauses. Uh, so what should we do? What have you learned in, in your years at being a cutting edge innovator? 
I think you just need to keep repeating the mantra and spreading the message to people. And you're absolutely right that the IMF has written papers on natural disaster clauses. The uh, ICMA put out their form of hurricane clause back in 2018. So in between Grenada and Barbados, there's version 1.5 of the uh, hurricane clause. So I think that there needs to be momentum in the market to push this forward. And I'm not sure if the pandemic is it and maybe we actually need uh, a sudden stop and you know, a crisis to draw people's attention to the problem. And we all know that uh, you know, natural disasters are only increasing in their intensity and frequency in recent years. We are seeing more extreme weather, more extreme storms, more extreme hurricanes. And even as we speak, we, we, you know, the wildfire is raging through California and you've got Hurricane Sally visiting the southern parts of the United States. So these problems aren't happening in faraway places, you know, far, far away from the uh, Western world. And we need to start thinking about it before it's too late. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Jim. Um, It's been a a real pleasure to get a chance to talk to you. And um, hopefully we will have you on again when we can talk about uh, not just version 3.0, but maybe maybe something COVID related. Who knows? But uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Thank you for having me. This was great fun. Thank you.